Welcome to the Healthy Hair Podcast. Your host, Dr. Amy Brenner, is a board-certified OBGYN with additional certifications in functional and integrative medicine. This podcast is meant to help women find reliable, relevant information to help them feel better, look better, and live better. Here, you will hear in-depth information about hormones, sexual medicine, aesthetics, cosmetic gynecology, and functional medicine. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Healthy Her. And today I have a really special guest. His name is Steve Goldring. And I am so excited for y'all to hear this conversation that we're going to have. This is something I just want to shout from the rooftops and really have all of my patients at least listen to because I just feel like so many women have been misinformed over the past almost 20 years now about hormone therapy. So today I have Steve Goldring and we're going to talk about how hormones got such a bad rap. So welcome, Steve. Thank you so much. Yeah, I've, I've been uh, really interested in hormones, especially for menopause and perimenopause for the oh, last 20 years, but especially in the last five or six, I've really been emphasizing those. And I've, uh, I've worked directly with a continuing medical education company for a long time. And now I'm off on my own doing courses that I help doctors and patients with what I call easy to understand patient education resources. Yeah, I love your work. In fact, that's how I found out about you is I follow you on YouTube. And I think your videos are just so educational and easy to follow and great data. So I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your knowledge with all of our listeners. You're very welcome. Uh, it's, it's a topic that I can go on and on about. So stop me if I go too long. Yeah. So today, you're right. You and I could talk about so many topics. Um, but today we specifically were going to talk about this major study in hormone therapy that was published in 2002. And it's really what changed the tide of hormone therapy and or at least so many people's perception of hormone therapy. And it amazes me that those perceptions still persist today in 2021. Yeah, it's it's crazy, but essentially any person, any patient and any physician that has anything to do with menopause or hormones is going to be influenced in some way by the results of the Women's Health Initiative, even if that patient or, or physician doesn't even think about that or they don't even know about the study, that that influence has been in the water for the last 20 years. And it's it's astounding to me that that study has had such a huge impact in some positive ways, but I would also consider some negative ways uh, on hormone replacement therapy, especially, and the, the whole idea of using hormones in women in menopause. Yeah. So before we go into the study, uh, when I was in medical school and residency, before this came out, we passed out hormones basically to everybody because the the data up until that point was just really favorable of not only does it help with all these symptoms of menopause, but it could help protect your heart, your brain, your bones. Um, if you could just want to give a little background of the history of hormones, and then we'll talk about 
this study that we're going to talk about and how it changed everything. Yeah. So essentially, uh, hormones were kind of the, the, the start of hormone replacement for menopause was somewhere around the early 40s, where it actually became economically feasible for women to get hormones. And about in the 60s sometime, uh, this drug called Premarin was was really highly promoted for women in menopause. And what happened was it really worked. It really solved a lot of their symptoms and took care of a lot of the the terrible ways they were feeling and really helped them to get their lives back. And so there were there was also some kind of preliminary evidence in the late 60s, 70s, up into the 80s that kind of indicated maybe that this hormone replacement therapy might be able to help reduce the risk of heart attacks and heart disease in women. And so that was kind of the the environment that was happening when this study was was conducted in early it, late 1999 or 2000 some sometime in that neighborhood but essentially uh, the idea was that there are probably some good benefits of replacing women's hormones and let's do a big study to really see what the benefits might be and you know what what the dangers might be of those uh, hormone replacement therapy uh, treatments yeah, so hence the idea of let's really study this in a randomized, controlled fashion. And um, and that's what we got with the Women's Health Initiative. And what I love about your videos on this is, is sometimes it's really difficult to explain what went on in this study because there's two different arms and they looked at different variables and outcomes. And you just do such a great job of breaking it down for the... Um, for a woman to understand what they were really trying to do. Yeah, that's one of the things. The name of my company is Simple Hormones. And so I ask myself two questions anytime I create content. Number one, is it simple? And number two, is it about hormones? And so I, I try to emphasize those two things and I try to boil things down as much as possible. Not so that we're, we're boiling away the meaning and boiling away the truth, but boiling it down so that people can really understand it, even if you don't necessarily have a science degree or a medical background or that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I think that's pretty much sums it up. You make it sound so simple. So... So let's get into it and let's simply discuss it, what this study was that turned hormones upside down. So one of the things that I really in, am interested in is you begin at the beginning, the title of the study is Risks and Benefits of Estrogen Plus Progestin in Healthy Postmenopausal Women. And so that seems like a pretty straightforward title. The only issue that I have with that title is the word healthy. Um, it's in bold print at the very top of the page, but there's a lot of indications that the women in this study weren't all that healthy. In fact, quite a bit of them, the, the average, uh, what's called BMI or basal metabolic index was 28.5, which means essentially most of them are overweight or some of them were obese. Uh, 50% of them were either past or current smokers. Around 4% had diabetes, 12 to 13% had high cholesterol, 36% had high blood pressure. Um, it, this is an amazing one. Uh, somewhere between 1.6% and 1.9% 1 
had a history of heart attack before the study started. So the idea that these were healthy women is a little bit uh, of a puzzle to me. Even though that's in the title, the data that the, the researchers who published the study put in the study report indicates that they weren't all that healthy. They did have some significant health problems. Yeah, no kidding. If that's healthy, I'd be scared to know what's considered unhealthy. Yeah, so before you get into it, even at that title of explaining to people the diff- what the drugs that were used in this study. Yeah, so there were two uh, hormones that were used to treat women. Um, one was called conjugated equine estrogens, and the other one is called medroxyprogesterone acetate. And those are often abbreviated as CEE and MPA. Uh, Conjugated equine estrogens are derived from horse pee. So, and I've actually seen uh, some some video, some old time video that the drug companies don't like to have people see, but essentially they collected urine from pregnant mares and dried the urine and made a drug out of it, uh, which sounds a little bit disgusting. Mm -hmm. Uh, One problem with that that way of getting estrogens, there are estrogens in there, and there's actually a small percentage of the human estrogen called estradiol. It's probably around 5% of what's in conjugated equine estrogens is the actual estrogen that humans make in their bodies. But the rest are mostly estrogens that only come from horses that aren't found in humans at all. And so there's kind of a big question mark about how kind of dirty and messy this particular combination of hormones is when we use it in human beings. Now, the the second hormone is, is sort of an analog to progesterone, which is made by the human body. But this one's called medroxyprogesterone. There's a tiny little chemical adjustment that's made in this. And what that does is it makes it about 20 times more powerful than the progesterone that a woman's body makes. And it also uh, totally changes the way it works. Now, it'll do some things the same as progesterone, but not all. And it also may introduce some risks that natural progesterone doesn't have. Yeah. So just because it's more powerful, more does not always mean better. Exactly. And and there were some reasons why they wanted to use a more powerful form. It essentially means you can use a lower dose. Um, and I, they, they had their reasons for using medroxyprogesterone. Those actually came out in the early 60s. Uh, one of the reasons was because when you give estrogens to women, Uh, estrogens naturally tend to cause a buildup of the lining of the uterus. That's called the endometrium. And that that wasn't, uh, uh, doctors weren't really aware of the issue until the early 60s when they were giving a lot of women these estrogens and the estrogens were really helping with their menopause symptoms. But after some time, they started to notice these women had uh, uterine a cancer of the uterine lining or the endometrium that was developing. And they finally figured out that the estrogens were what's causing it. And so if they gave a progestin along with the estrogens, then that kind of solved that problem. And that kind of came into play in the early to mid 60s. 
Um, and so that's kind of the reasoning why we have both of these two hormones given during this trial, the Women's Health Initiative trial. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it gets confusing because women come in to see me and tell me if you've had the same experience in your practice where women say, oh, I take progesterone. And they're like, see, it's on the bottle because medroxyprogesterone, it actually does have the word progesterone in it, but it's not progesterone. Just like you said, it's a progested gin. Right. Yeah, and the, not, the fact the that those thing. names are, are kind of similar is is a big point of confusion for a lot of women. And, and it's something that I, that I really try to clarify early on that progesterone is completely different from medroxyprogesterone. Even though the names are the same, they behave quite differently in many different aspects. Yeah, just I think if uh, our listeners just took that message alone, I think I would call this a success is I feel like that's one of my major missions in life is to just teach the world what the difference is between a progestogen or a progestin and natural progesterone because patients don't know, physicians don't know. And even when I read other journal articles, they'll be talking about progesterone. And then when you actually go and look in the study of what drug was used, it was a progestin. I've, I've seen that a lot too. Um, and, and many times it's, it's a real detective kind of job to figure out what progestin was used in this study, even though they used the word progesterone. And, and, and it can be confusing for me. And I spend a, a lot of my time looking into these studies. And, and I think it's, it's because it's been in the water for so long that people just assume that progestins and progesterone are the same thing. Right. It's, it's kind of maddening to me. But anyway, back to this study. This study used MPA, which is a progestin, not bioidentical progesterone, and a combination of horses estrogen called conjugated equine estrogens. Right. Um, and, and as I mentioned, the conjugated equine estrogens are kind of a messy combination. There's so many. Uh, actually, the, the reality of conjugated equine estrogen is that no one really knows what's in it, except for the fact that it has horse pee. And it has a whole lot of estrogens. Some studies that, that have been many years ago said it was maybe 10 or 12. Other studies said it might have been as many as 60 different estrogens. And then there's also a whole lot of other ingredients in conjugated equine estrogens that just happen to be in that horse's urine. And there's no telling what they are. Uh, interestingly enough, the manufacturer has kind of been grandfathered in. Nowadays, in 2021, we wouldn't be able to put a drug on the market that we don't know what's in it. That just would not work. But this is an older drug, and it's been approved for um, probably over 50 years. And so it, it basically gets a pass where we don't really have to know what's in it, and we hmm. never will know what's in it because the manufacturer won't ever tell us. Hmm. I did not know that fact. Interesting. Okay, so back to the study. How did they set it up looking at these two? There were a couple of different arms of the study. Um, the, the two main arms that, I, that I'm interested in most are one was uh, 
let's back up a little bit. So these were all women who were post-menopausal. The average age of women in the study was about 63.3 years. And what that means is those women were actually, on average, about 12 years past the age of menopause. The, none of these women had menopausal symptoms. In fact, menopausal symptoms were a disqualifying factor in the study. And the reason for that is if women had symptoms, let's say they had hot flashes, and they received the placebo, well, they would immediately know that they were receiving the placebo because their hot flashes wouldn't or would come back or wouldn't go away. And vice versa, if they uh, received the drug and their hot flashes went away, then they would know they received the drug. And so the study researchers intentionally excluded women who had any symptoms. And they focused on women who were well past menopause. And that creates a couple of different issues. The, the primary issue that it creates is as women age, especially between the age of 51, where menopause usually starts, and the age of about 63, many women start to develop heart disease. If there's no intervention at all, those women will eventually have blocked arteries in their hearts. And mm -hmm. the number one killer of women over the age of 50 is heart disease. Uh, about one out of two women over 50 will die of heart disease. It's, I, I think, something like 10 times more women over 50 die of heart disease than die of breast cancer. And so it is the major thing to be concerned about. Now, the study essentially was designed in a way that very likely as these women progressed through their uh, 50s up to age 63, they were building up clogged arteries and they developed heart disease. And that's what the study showed is a lot of the women had heart disease at the end of the study. Um, there I'm kind of losing my train of thought here for just a second. Um, the, the one thing that um, is important to look at is in the study, if we separate out the women by age, the younger women who received hormones, those women did not develop heart disease. Older women who received hormones did develop heart disease. And so there's there's kind of a theory that developed of that that's called the the timing hypothesis the idea was that if we give hormones early in menopause, then we're able to prevent heart disease, which was kind of the initial focus of the study is, do hormones prevent heart disease? And the conclusions that the researchers uh, made when they wrote the study was that indeed uh, the patients on hormone replacement did not have less heart disease, but they didn't tease out the, the age issue quite as well as they might have. And when in, in further uh, evaluation of the Women's Health Initiative, there have been a lot of studies kind of looking back at it. We can see a lot of information that shows when we do give patients hormone replacement early in menopause, it makes a big difference in their heart health. Yeah, but th that came out, I think, what, was it about five years later that that sub-analysis came out? Yeah, and the thing about the Women's Health Initiative is it's massive mountains of data. And so th there's a lot of people who have been combing through that for the last 20 years. And so some of it has taken a lot of time to come out. And some of it uh, 
some of the the more recent evaluations of the data have kind of gone against the original conclusions of the study and kind of said, wait a minute, maybe it wasn't quite as bad as we might have originally thought all of this data from the Women's Health Initiative. Yeah. Unfortunately, that message that if you start hormones within the first 10 years of menopause, actually the benefits of it significantly outweigh any risks if there are any. But that message kind of just got swept under the rug versus all the negative stuff we heard about in 2002 was, you know, on every newspaper, magazine and media that we know of. Absolutely. And I think the the takeaway message from the public's perspective, um, if they know anything about the Women's Health Initiative, is number one, there was a 26% increase in breast cancer. And number two, there was an increase in heart attack and heart disease. And those two those two conclusions, there's a lot of, of nuance around those that we really have to look a little bit more closely rather than just accept those at face value. Um, one of the things that I like to talk, tell people about is there are multiple studies that have been conducted, large-scale studies, maybe not quite as large as the Women's Health Initiative, but large-scale studies nonetheless that have looked specifically at this idea of a timing hypothesis where if we give women replacement hormones early in menopause, let's take a look and see how they do with their heart disease. And there are two specific studies that looked very closely at that. And both of them discovered that it was true that if you give hormone replacement early in menopause, it does decrease the level of heart attacks and heart disease in these women. Yeah. What are your thoughts just in general, if somebody missed that window, but now, you know, they're 65, they went through menopause, early fifties, and they want to start hormones at that time. Do you think, well, it's too late. Sorry, you missed it. No, I don't think so. I yeah. do think yeah, that this either. is a situation that um, that a, a qualified hormone optimization uh, specialist really needs to take care of. Somebody who is inexperienced may not see all of the, the possible issues, but I absolutely don't believe that an older age completely excludes women from the possibility of getting hormone replacement therapy. Now, there may be some adjustments that need to be made and some some uh, kind of concessions. But um, in general, I think it's, it's not fair to those women to say, I'm sorry, you're out of luck. You're going to have to suffer with these symptoms a whole lot longer. And that, that's not absolutely necessary. Based on the studies, especially the studies after the Women's Health Initiative that really show how safe and effective uh, hormone optimization can be for women, no matter what age, but especially um, women. The, the safety of hormone optimization has been pretty well established for younger women, and it's also well established for women as they get older with some caveats, some things that they need to be aware of. Correct. I agree. I just, what we do in our practice is do some baseline evaluation of, of bones and heart and breasts to see, has anything happened up until this point? Just so we have a baseline. But I agree with you. I don't think it's an exclusion. 
Uh, anything else did this study show about heart disease? Was there a difference between the estrogen only group and the people who took estrogen plus the MPA? Yeah, it's pretty clear that the MPA has been more of a problem overall than the estrogen. I mean, the, the fact that the um, conjugated equine estrogens is a messy, dirty combination, that's that's you know one thing to consider. But overall, it it didn't appear to be all that harmful. The harmful part of this study was the medroxyprogesterone part. And patients who were on medroxyprogesterone in general had greater risks for several different things. Now, um, the, the main one that, that is uh, very commonly referred to is a slight increase in the number of breast cancer cases. Um, the interesting thing that I found when I read the study closely, which a lot of people haven't read it, and so they just assume that they know what it's all about, but if you read the study closely, what it talks about is women who took estrogen and medroxyprogesterone had an increased risk of breast cancer that was almost statistically significant. <laughs> now, I'm not a statistician, but the idea of statistical significance is, is kind of the idea of, is this caused by the drug, whatever problem, is it caused by the drug or the hormone, or is it by chance? Is it an accident? And that's where the, the term statistical significance comes in. If something is statistically significant, that means the chance is pretty solid that it's whatever this problem was, in this case breast cancer, was probably caused by the hormones. The study said it was almost statistically significant which is exactly the same as saying it is not statistically significant, meaning the increased risk of breast cancer was very likely due to chance. And it was a very small number. The number of patients who uh, had more breast cancer, it was 30 patients out of 10,000 that went up to 38 patients out of 10,000. So it's just a very, very small percentage. Um, so it's it's something to be aware of. But that's not what that's the, not the message that patients got. That's not what was on TV and in the magazines. No, but what happens is we we like to emphasize in the media the most uh, dramatic and the thing that's going to get clicks and views and and people to buy newspapers back in the two thousands. Um, but but what we don't emphasize is the nuance and the specific words that were reported in the study that really kind of qualify what we're saying. Technically, there was a 26% increase, but overall, it was it was a 26% uh, relative risk increase. And there's a difference between relative risk versus absolute risk. And it, right. it's it's a matter of reporting something that's really. Uh, scandalous and terrifying, but the the underlying truth is maybe a little more subtle and we have to come to understand that a little more more completely. Right. And that was with the people who took the MPA. How about the group who took just estrogen? We certainly didn't hear the results of this. Right. And that, that came out actually a couple of years later that the estrogen only arm Oddly enough, that group had less breast cancer than the women who took uh, placebo. So it, 
in some respect, the estrogen had some protective factor. Now, this, this study by no means proves that estrogen protects women against breast cancer, but it was just a, a piece of data that said, wait a minute, the, the thought is that estrogen causes breast cancer, but in the study, the women who took estrogen had less. And so that's got to make us really rethink that whole idea that estrogen causes breast cancer. I've, I've heard uh, there's a famous professor. Um, I'm, I'm blanking on his name right now. Oh, th there's a famous professor at Oregon Health Sciences University. He's probably retired by now. His name is Dr. Leon Spiroff. And he says that estrogen doesn't cause breast cancer, but it influences breast cancer. And there's a real subtle difference between those that sometimes is a little hard to explain to patients and sometimes to even physicians. Yeah. He, he was the author of a lot of our textbooks in training. I think this study also looked at the risk of getting a blood clot or a, the medical term for it is venous thromboembolic phenomena. Yeah. And it appears that, um, that there are certain estrogens and conjugated equine estrogen has been pretty well established to increase the risks of blood clots, especially in a certain population, population of women who have had a history of blood clots or who have kind of a genetic predisposition to blood clots. So um, it doesn't seem to be – I actually had a physician contact me. Uh, based on one of my YouTube videos where I mentioned blood clots in relation to estradiol. And a physician who, who I have a lot of respect for contacted me and he said, there aren't any studies that implicate estradiol in causing blood clots and in deep venous thrombosis and pulmonary embolism. And so I had to take a step back and say, well, I'm, I'm going to need to investigate that a little further but conjugated equine estrogens definitely have some studies that show they, they can increase blood clots, especially, as I mentioned, in those, those uh, susceptible populations. But it appears that th there's at least one point of view that says estradiol doesn't have those. I, I don't have all the data on that, but I would, I would tend to believe this physician because he's, he's pretty solid in his research. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to do some research on my own about it as well. Yeah. Yeah. So what's um, interesting to me is that this is the hallmark study about hormone replacement. And so many OBGYNs are anti-hormones. In fact, I'm in some Facebook groups and people ask, doctors ask questions. And I mean, I would say every other day there's a question of, would you give hormone therapy to this person? And this person's a diabetic, this person's 40 and had a, a, a surgical menopause. And would you give her hormones? And, and the gist of kind of OBGYNs is anti-hormones because of this paper. Um, but I think as we've kind of gone round and round is, first of all, I don't ever, ever prescribe the drugs that are in these that were in the WHI. I think there are so many better options to give patients. But even if I was prescribing the drugs that were in the WHI, it's not as bad as what they made it sound. Do you think that's kind of the 
smart kind of take it all away is even if you were using these drugs that we have so much better now, it's just not as bad as it. I I totally agree that the, the response to the women's health initiative and kind of the conventional wisdom about hormones that's informed by the WHI is really incorrect in its evaluation of the results of the study. If you read the study closely, you'll say, oh, well, it's not quite as bad as it seems when we read the newspaper or we reread an article in a, a lay magazine or, or whatever. It, it's not as bad as kind of what people think it is, even a lot of physicians, because I think, frankly, a lot of them haven't really read the study closely and really looked closely at the results that have been – and additional studies that have kind of dug deep into the data over the past 20 years. The other thing that I think is important is there are these other studies that go beyond the Women's Health Initiative. And as you mentioned, there are other alternative uh, hormones that are much cleaner and much more effective and much uh, safer than the combination of conjugated estrogens and medroxyprogesterone. And the, the bottom line is that Bioidentical estradiol along with bioidentical progesterone are really the best treatments for menopause. And there are at least four studies that I, I really am big, a big fan of that show clearly that those, those two hormones are the most effective and the safest combination to use in menopause. Much safer than especially the medroxyprogesterone acetate aspect of the WHI. Yes, I, I, I couldn't agree more. So it amazes me that there are still people prescribing uh, the drugs that are in the... Yeah, I, I don't either. I'm like, who is doing this? <laughs> it was one thing back in the early 2000s when there weren't a lot of choices, or at least I wasn't aware of them. Yeah, so what can you say are the take-home messages to anybody that might be considering hormones or maybe get grief from friends and family that they're taking hormones and maybe being selfish that they're taking them of just some take home points about uh, the WHI or hormones in general. Well, I would say that we need to really take the WHI with a grain of salt and we need to understand that it was one study and it had some particular, uh, results and we need to look closely at those results and kind of be informed by those results but i like to say that the women's health initiative was not the last word on hormone replacement therapy it's not the be all and end all because uh, there are lots of other uh, alternatives to those two hormones even in the study report itself the study uh, authors said specifically the results of this study should not be applied to other hormone replacement drugs. Now, the FDA and a lot of physician groups have completely ignored exactly what the authors stated in the study, <laughs> which is these results don't apply to estradiol and progesterone. So that's one thing we need to do is be careful not to apply wholesale the results of the WHI to all hormone replacement. Um, excuse me. The other thing that that I think we need to really focus on is that there are some advancements in our understanding 
um, in the past 20 years that really help us see that optimizing our hormones over the long term, especially optimizing women in menopause, optimizing their estradiol and progesterone in the long run reduces all of their symptoms. It actually may eliminate all of their symptoms of menopause and it protects them from long-term risks at the same time, which is not something that you would get from reading the Women's Health Initiative. But when you see this, this gathering of a whole bunch of other studies and you see the, the overall data, you can start to see that optimizing women's hormones is really the pathway to eliminating symptoms and optimizing their health overall. Yeah. I, c I couldn't agree more. I think it's up there with uh, diet, exercise, and good sleep. I think it's health 101. Absolutely. I'm, I'm a big believer in uh, optimizing your sleep. I, I got about four hours of sleep last night, and I feel terrible. And most of the time, I try to get seven or seven and a half, something like that. Um, but I, I, I really like optimizing people's sleep eating a really uh, healthy diet, and we may disagree on what that is, uh, exercise, getting moving is very important, but also optimal hormone levels. And when I say optimal hormone levels, sometimes that means getting more hormones and sometimes that means getting less. Things like insulin, you may want to have less insulin, you may want to have less cortisol, you may want to have more estrogen, you may want to have more progesterone. So it, it's really important from my perspective that especially women in menopause and in perimenopause, that they have someone who really knows what they're doing, take a look at their hormone levels and really optimize those levels. So they're not too high, not too low, but just right. Yeah. You and I speak from the same playbook. Where can people find you and learn more and watch all your great videos? Well, I would suggest the first place to go would be my YouTube channel. So if you just uh, look up Simple Hormones on YouTube, um, I have a whole bunch of videos. Uh, I have some for women in menopause, women in perimenopause, for PCOS, for men with low testosterone, for thyroid issues, all kinds of different things. Um, I, I can... I can pretty much guarantee if you're having an issue with hormones, I've probably addressed it in some of my videos. Um, I post a video pretty much every week, and I've been doing it for the past, oh, half a year, close to a year now. Yeah, I love it. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Hair. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and the web. Go to www dramybrenner.com to learn more. This podcast is for general information only and does not constitute as medical advice, the practice of medicine, nursing or other healthcare services. No patient-physician relationship is formed. The information in the podcast and any references, material or links are at the sole discretion of the listener and not meant to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Listeners should not delay or disregard obtaining medical advice for any medical issues or diagnoses that they may have and should seek medical advice from their healthcare provider for any such conditions.